Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. You know, when I left Sony to go meet my family, they told me I hadn't been there long enough to acquire any leave. So if I left, they wouldn't, I wouldn't have a job when I came back. Uh, but then I told them the whole story. They said, well, go on and go, you'll, have, you'll be fine. And so when I came back, people were saying, wow, this sounds like it would have been a, a good movie. I kept insisting on writing it and they kept saying no because I hadn't been to college and hadn't any writing experience. So I felt like, well, it's my story. I didn't have to ask anybody anyway. So I got some legal pads and started writing it by hand. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode. Tara, we are uh, in our second week of recovery from CrimeCon. Oh my gosh, I got sick afterwards. I think I'm the only person that didn't get like sick or get COVID. Right? So many of our friends were testing positive, but we just also chatted with someone that will be out in a couple weeks, their episode, and they were feeling a little worn down, but they said it was just from the energy. It was just worn down from the energy. Yeah, CrimeCon can be overwhelming for survivors and for podcasters and for everybody, right? Oh yeah, you know, especially if it's a bunch of extroverts, like in general, you know, and I'm like an introvert extrovert, and well, no, it's a lot of you're an extroverted introvert? I don't know. I'm like in the middle. Like I like my alone time. But no, there's a lot of introverts there normally, not extroverts. There are a lot of introverts there for sure. It's exhausting being a lot of people and being around a lot of people. Yes. People asking you a lot of questions, people kind of, you know, getting in your space. It, it can be a lot. And that's why you got to take time for self-care. And you are offering this is the last week to sign up for your retreat in sedona correct oh yes there's one more week away it's next weekend it's gonna be amazing fun lots of yoga i have a sound bowl class and it's gonna be a great time to connect with other women that are experiencing trauma or going on their healing journey yeah it's gonna be the start of a healing journey you're gonna talk a lot about self-care you're teaching yoga and it's in sedona and what are the dates again october 13th through the 16th fantastic and there's what one more slot left right yes just one more spot so email me right away email you tara newell pr at gmail.com so speaking of people you know we, we just interviewed someone whose episode is going to be coming out in, in the next couple of weeks they started a podcast and some people make movies about their lives. And that's what our guest today has done. And who was that guest? We have Antoine Fisher. It was really cool because I remember reading his book, Finding Fish in class. And then I saw him on Instagram somewhere. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I need to connect with him. He's a survivor. And then I was so happy when he decided to come on the program yeah, it's and share his story and connect with you. Yeah, it was really cool. We had some, you know, because he has a, a history in Ohio, of course. Everybody comes from Ohio, it seems like. You know, amazing. And I remember when the film came out and Derek Luke and, and Denzel Washington, it was a really big deal. And the amount of success that he had and he's found as a writer 
and as a creative doing something positive with his story is is incredible it's an inc like that alone is an incredible story to make it in hollywood it takes so much effort and and to do it at such a high level and to see him just be such a, a gracious and wonderful human being and um and such a positive influence on so many people has been really amazing yeah no he has just such great energy and you can honestly see it in his skin in his body just he doesn't hold his trauma yeah well he's definitely done a, a fantastic job of uh, catharsis and doing something with it that's been very, very positive. So what do you say we get into his story? Yes, let's get into it. Well, I would really like to know, well, I know your story in a sense, but not from you personally. And I would really love to hear your story, your journey, and how you became a writer and really told your story. Well, I'll give you the, the, the quick one because it takes about an hour and a half to tell the whole story, right? But anyway, I'll tell you, my story is that uh, my father I was 23 year old, years old and he was murdered by a girlfriend he had that wasn't my mother. And I was uh, uh, born two months after he was murdered. And uh, so my mother was incarcerated. And in those days, it wasn't a usual thing to see someone that young incarcerated. And it was a girls industrial school. And that was in Ohio. And so I, um, of course, you can keep me there. So they put me in an orphanage and where I stayed for a little while. And I was, uh, I was a foster kid with a woman who really loved me. Apparently, they were admonishing her all the time for holding me close. They were hoping that my mother, when she got out, she would come to claim me. But, you know, uh, they felt that it would be difficult for me to uh, separate from this woman. So they took me and put me in another foster home where I stayed for 12 years. And this was the abusive foster home. And there were three other foster children there. And we all experienced, uh, I found out later, some of the same things and some things that I was able to witness myself. Uh, some of the foster kids started to leave at some point, and I was the last one there. I didn't know my foster parents were planning to go back to Mississippi where they had originated. They never told me anything. And one day I came home from school and my, my it was a, a, a bigger story, but she, my foster mother said, I want you to go back where you came from. Well, I had lived with them since I was two years old and I didn't know where it was that I would be going. And she, it was a, a bigger, uh, uh, it was, a uh, um, it wasn't a good uh, scene. So uh, she sent me uh, back to the social service office in downtown Cleveland. And then uh, they put me back in the orphanage that where I was. And I had stayed in the orphanage like uh, seven months. And I was the oldest kid there. And so they didn't have a, a school uh, grade for me. So I had to leave the walk from the orphanage every morning to the school that was in that neighborhood 
And then the summer came and toward the end of the summer, they came to me and said that they couldn't find a place for, meant for me. Like uh, that they were, uh, were having difficulty finding someone who was willing to take a teenage boy. I was, uh, at the time I was 14 years old. And so I, um, they came to me, they wanted to put me in Boys Town, but my foster brother had went there and he, and I ran into him. He told me if they ever try to uh, offer that to you, don't go because the worst kids in the neighborhood are there. And so don't go. So they did offer it to me. I refused. So I, um, so I went back to the orphanage and then they came to me and said there was a, a reform school in Western Pennsylvania, like a kind of like a detention center for bad boys. And I decided uh, that I would accept it no matter what, because they kept putting pressure on me about my uh, decision not to go to Boys Town. So I went there and turned out that I, I kind of liked it there. You know, uh, nobody was bothering me. We were all the same. and. I was what they called an honor boy. I was able to go out into the city, leave after school and do, you know, just like a regular kid just happened to be living there. But early I found out that, you know, you can't do that because some of the boys who can't, they get upset with you. So I stopped going and I became sort of, fell into the regimentation of the whole thing. And and uh, I stayed there till I, was 17 and um, where I graduated from high school. And um, I remember graduating and it was, I was just wish somebody could see me, you know, because I was always told I would never mount anything and nobody wanted me and not to think that they wanted me because I was living in their house and that kind of thing. So um, anyway, the next day, uh, the very next day, uh, there, uh, this guy appeared in my doorway and said, are you ready to go back to Cleveland? I said, what do you mean? He said, you are, you graduated, so you're going back and you're being emancipated. And I said, what is emancipated? What is that? He said, I'll explain to you on the way uh, back to Cleveland. So he said that they had arranged for me a room in a men's shelter, basically, is what it was, and, uh, and that I would have to... Uh, take care of myself, meaning that I would have to, um, uh, see, I was a ward of the state for all my life. And so he was telling me that I had to find a job and figure out how to take care of myself. They had gotten this place, this room for me, and it was for two months. And uh, two months, I would turn 18, and then uh, they weren't going to pay for it anymore. Well, I went there, and... Uh, the next day, I, I was so excited to be back in Cleveland because, you know, it's my hometown. I was hoping to see some of my friends and all that. And uh, the next morning, I went out onto the street. Maybe about midday, I started running to other foster kids that I had known in foster care and at the orphanage. And we were all turning 18 that summer or had already turned 18 and graduated. So we were all emancipated. The trouble is that, uh, you know, Pimps and hustlers and prostitutes, they all knew that every year around June 14th, there was going to be a new group of foster kids who were going to hit the streets with no way to go, no guidance, uh, no way to take care of themselves. So uh, uh, some of my friends, uh, you know, not that they came up missing because I would see them around, but they weren't uh, visible as they were the first few days. Uh, so 
I decided a lot of things happened. So I decided that I needed to just stay by myself. I could tell you a lot of harrowing stories, but I would just get to the point. Um, this was like a long summer and some of my friends didn't make it to winter. And uh, I, uh, meaning they passed away during the summer. And uh, fall came and then winter came and I was still outside. And uh, I was uh, a shoplifting. I decided that I could not steal anything other than food. So I would like steal potato chips, stuff like that. And when I got caught, it would be easier to explain. If I had an explanation, maybe you know I could get some consideration for just being hungry. So, uh, and I, I got caught a few times, more than a few times. Anyway, it was bad. I uh, found uh, some um, place, sometimes I had a decent place to stay. One of my foster sisters, I heard that I was out on the street, sort of, and she, you know, this is one of the daughters of my foster mother, original, you know, my foster mother. And uh, so I uh, stayed there sometimes, and, you know, you can feel when you're not really welcome, but they just don't want to uh, see you out there. So, and, and the holidays were coming, and the holidays were around, and uh, I felt like I was ruining the holidays just my presence. And so I went back out into the street uh, and it was cold. And I had some friends, childhood friends I went to junior high school with and uh, I would stay, but I found places to stay and it was really bad. And so to make the long story shorter, I was walking down the street and I saw this sign that said, join the Navy and see the world. I went, damn. I had nothing else to do, <laughs> so I figured I went in there. And so uh, the rec I, I told them I wanted to join the Navy, and I said, well, you know, we're packing up for the for the holidays. You, if you come back after the first, we'll help you. This was two days before Christmas. And I explained my whole story to them, and then they said, okay, uh, we'll see what we can do, uh, but you have to take a test. So they gave me an aptitude test, and then they got me a room at a Holiday Inn, and this was, the, I took this long shower, you know, this long shower. They're probably still cleaning that tub out. I'm telling you, it was, it wasn't good. So anyway, the next morning they took me to the federal building. Then that night I was in Great Lakes, Illinois in boot camp. And I kept saying, I got to do this for me. You know, I, I, you know, I have to get through it all. And I'm dyslexic. So I was worried about the test you have to take because you have to take academic tests. And I was never a good test taker. I have anxieties and things like that. It's interesting that you guys are not making my anxiety flare. So you guys must be really cool, right? <laughs> well, that's for sure. You yeah. got that right. <laughs> I, I had a friend that went to West Point that was dyslexic too. He had a hard time. Yeah, it could be rough, you know. But I convinced myself. I had this thing I would chant every time it started to get really hard. Just remember, you know, that I have to do it for myself. And I was graduating. I had that same feeling that I wanted somebody to see me, you know, the same way I felt when I graduated from high school. And then so they sent me to San Diego. I went on the ship. So I went, I spent 11 years in the Navy and traveled everywhere, you know, just places that I would never, you know, heard of, of course. And then I just was really... Uh, educated to the world. 
I discovered the world is not even, I mean, the earth is not even that big, you know, because you could be in one country and then a few days later, just be in another one and just on a boat, you know? So yeah. anyway, yeah. So I I decided I would get, I was living in Japan. I was, and I was decided to get out of the Navy. So I uh, heard it was a Navy base in Long Beach, California. So I got stationed there and I started thinking I wanted to get out. I'd never taken care of myself. I'd never seen a check with my name on it. They didn't have a Statue of Liberty on it. <laughs> so I got out and I became a federal corrections officer and I was stationed at the prison at Terminal Island on uh, San Pedro Island. And uh, after three years, I discovered that it didn't suit my personality to be a prison guard. So I heard that the movie studios uh, uh, was hiring security guards over there at Sony Pictures. And so they hired me and I started thinking about my real family and some of the things my social worker had told me and this Navy psychiatrist, the one that Denzel plays in the movie, was telling me that everybody comes from somewhere and you should one day, you know, look for your family. So I started uh, looking for them. I had some clues. My social worker had told me when I was 14, when I was taken out of that one home. I knew his name when he died and all of that. And I actually found them. And uh, actually, I went to school with my cousins, my un uncle's children, my father's brother's kids. They lived two streets over when I was in the foster home. And I didn't, you know, they told me if they had known about me that they would have uh, taken me. And uh, my whole family lived in that neighborhood, even when my father was alive. He walked the same streets went to the same school that I went to in junior high it was a high school back then but I went to meet them and uh, they found my mother so I got a chance to meet her and then I came back and you know when I left Sony to go meet my family they told me I hadn't been there long enough to acquire any leave so if I left they wouldn't I wouldn't have a job when I came back uh, but then I told them the whole story. They said, well, go on and go. You'll, have, you'll be fine. And so when I came back, people were saying, wow, this sounds like it would have been a, a good movie. I kept insisting on writing it, and they kept saying no because I hadn't been to college and hadn't any writing experience. So I felt like, well, it's my story. I didn't have to ask anybody anyway. So I got some legal pads and started writing it by hand. And so there's a producer. He's a big producer now, but back then, he, he was Todd Black. He was, uh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine, of course, 30 years now. And, um, uh, I, I, you know, it was a, a more involved story, but ultimately uh, he read what I wrote and thought I had writing talent, but I needed to write a screen, you know, learn how to write a screenplay. So they gave me an office in his bungalows at the 20th Century Fox lot. And took about four months of writing and doing it over and over. I wrote 41 drafts of Antoine Fisher before he sold it to 20th Century Fox. And then, so I've been a writer for out here in LA, writing movies for 30 years. And I never did anything else. I've been one of the lucky ones to be able to have a long career. And so that's the short version. <laughs> that's amazing. Right? Yeah. I'm just like 41 versions of your story. I, I 
can't even imagine just going through all that and going through all that trauma again and then having the capability to write it down because just I've tried to write my story and it's hard. Yeah, uh, it was it was hard. And, you know, writing screenplays, that's hard. I mean, because there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of tools you have to use certain ways so the filmmakers can understand the language so they can understand what it is that they're supposed to do. Of course, the director will alter things, but he, he or she still wants to know what you were envisioning. So I didn't know how to do all that. I just knew how to tell my story from my heart. And so Todd and Jason Blumenthal, Denzel, Rand Haynes, you know, over the course of the time uh, before the show actually came out, uh, we worked on it uh, over time, you know, and I was learning. I'm still learning. I tell you, some people think, oh, one day you learn how to write a screenplay. <laughs> Every time I write a screenplay, I get scared I'm not going to be able to do it again. <laughs> I've been doing it, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, when you said he, he put you in the bungalow, I was like, okay, you know, did, did he lock you in the bungalow with Sid Field? Or Blake Snyder, <laughs> or Blake Snyder, and say, read these first, and then go. This is how they they keep giving you notes, and you have to keep going back, and you have to keep going back until you do it right, and get it right, and understand. And that's why it was forty one drafts, because that is a way to learn. Some people might say the hard way, but if you learn that way, you will definitely understand. Yeah. Yeah. I became a cinematographer just by working. I was like, wait, you can make money doing like shooting stuff. Like this is what I want to do. Cause I also wanted to tell my own story. So yeah. it's a trial by fire. There's no better way to learn than just being immersed in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a story. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I have uh, come to, you know, the longer you live, you know, you have your trauma in life. You know, everybody has trauma in life, but some people, uh, they just relive it and over it and over again because some parts of them want to keep going through it. I think they get, uh, some people, I don't know, I don't think they get comfort from it, but it, it kind of, whatever they get out of it, they don't want to not let it go, but because you never are able to get rid of it or the you know, whatever, how it makes you feel, but you have to put it in, get it in some kind of perspective so you can go on. I was lucky that I was able to write my story and I wrote a play, I wrote a book, I wrote a movie, I've been speaking about it around the country, you know, for, for years. And so I think over the course of that, it's kind of like therapy. You know, a lot of people don't get the chance to say it, you know, and uh, so you have to almost say it with your mouth, you know, you have to share. And then one day I, I was uh, talking to my wife and I was telling her about my foster mother. This lady was like my, I think the word is nemesis. <laughs> that, that's, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. So I was saying uh, how I thought that they were really uh industrious people, how they were able to come to 
uh, Cleveland with no education and the way things were during the time they came uh, was pretty tough. Uh, as you know, older black people, they would not have been able to get into the job market or anything like that, but they made a middle-class life uh, through having thrift stores, I guess, foster kids. And, you know, we didn't help out because we ate food and we were kind of like one of those, you know, we kept growing. So they had to keep buying clothes. It wasn't like a good investment to have foster kids for that reason, but they were able to fashion together a middle-class life. And I was admiring that. And she said, well, I never heard you talk that way about them. I said, yeah, well, yeah, they were pretty rough. Yeah, it was pretty rough. But then I can remember things that I admired about them. So over the course of talking about them, you know, in various, you know, mediums, I guess, uh, I must have started thinking about some of the things that I admired about them. And I think it gave me, started giving me a kind of balance in my mind about them. I still feel the same way because no young person should be treated the way any of uh, my foster siblings and I were treated. But I do think that uh, there is, at least for myself, it's, it's I feel like, oh, it's balancing out. I, I can don't have to hang on to this as the only memory to deal with. Uh, this is also available to consider. Did I, and then I considered that I learned something from them. Did I get something out of what I admire about them? Yeah, I probably did. And so I feel like my whole life has been, you know, examining all of this. And I, you know, some people don't even get old enough to get to a place where they can put it all on the table and look at it and go like, ah, let's see. Oh, yeah, I do this because I remember uh, this is the way they did that. So, you know, when you're young and angry and you're having something to be angry about, yes. But then one day you're gonna have to look for the balance in it all or to crush you, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's interesting that abusers are so complex where you do have good moments with them and then you also have those terrible, traumatizing moments with them. And it's really interesting because it's you want to see sometimes that person as a bad person, but then it also helps navigate that they are just human in a sense when you see yes. the good and the bad. Yes. Yeah. And if you spend a lot of time thinking about the bad, which the bad can really suck you in, you can stay in there for a while. The good, you, you, you don't get sucked in. Almost you have to figure out how you to stay in because, you know, you want to go get another taste of, <laughs> of, of uh, the way you felt for so long. But I feel fortunate that I have a whole story. You know, I feel like if I hadn't lived long enough to get to the place where I could see something in them that I could admire, it wouldn't be a complete story in, in that, the story of them, you know? It was always available, but I had to grow or get to a place where I could, was ready for it. You yeah. understand what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, I was going to say, you know, something that really resonated with me, you said earlier on was the reminder of being in foster care of like the, the looming threat of you're in someone else's house and there's never any safety and they're constantly reminded. That was like, that was what it was like for me growing being in foster care is that yeah. looming, you know, that anvil over your head of you're a guest here, but you can be kicked out at any time. And I don't think that a lot of people understand that about foster care. They just think when kids go in there, it's just everything is yeah. fine. But it's really that at any time, the, the sands are constantly shifting. The floor is constantly moving. Yeah. And you don't know if they can just, because they do that. They hold that over your head. If you don't do something they don't like, we'll just send you back to the orphanage or we'll just send you somewhere else. That's right. I, I have a story. Uh, I don't know if I, I said this before, but uh, I was having, uh, me and my foster brothers uh, were having uh like a, we weren't getting along with the kids next door, and my uh, my my uh, foster mother's daughter's kids they were our age, and they also weren't getting along with them. So we were arguing over the fence with with the kids, and the mom came out, and then my foster sister, the mother of the other kids, uh, came out, and she said, "Whatever happens." no one better not touch these kids. And she pointed to her own kids and left me and my foster brothers out. And I felt like, wow, so we're, uh, if they do something to us, nobody's gonna care. I would always have these reminders that I was uh, not included. And she was one of the fair ones who said that we recognize that you guys were being mistreated. So that's why I brought you to my house on weekends sometimes, uh, yeah. And I remember her doing that, but for her to say that made me think like, wow, she knew. Uh, uh, and then she would say, well, at least you guys had a place to live. Well, I think maybe social service would have found some other place for us to live or whatever I thought. But what my point is, is that I would always have these moments where I would recognize that we weren't included, not even in the safety and that I wasn't protected under the umbrella of protection. She made that clear. Uh, so yeah, I remember that and other things like that. Foster care nowadays has almost become like a cottage industry, which I think has been exacerbated. And I speak to this, I have a friend that works in the system in Ohio. He's sort of a liaison as a guard, between the guardian ad litems and the courts. And uh, he was, you know, with the opioid crisis being exacerbated, that now people are taking on multiple sets of foster kids because they're getting money obviously for that. And so this cycle of, you know, that's one of the things that I saw being in foster care is a cycle of neglect and abuse, right? And mostly neglective mm -hmm. abuse. Um, do you ever like, do you ever think about that and how that's, that, that just continues to be perpetuated and no one really talks about it. They just sweep it under the rug. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember I went through a, a a point after foster care was over and I was an adult and I thought about the people who they market to, to be foster parents. I remember I was driving down the street and there was a laundromat on the corner where the, I had stopped at the stoplight and inside the uh, laundromat had a big sign that says, be a foster parent. And I was thinking if a person can't afford a washing machine, they may not be the best person to market to because uh, they may not have enough money to raise a kid. So I think a lot of people think if they think it's uh, 
um, something they can make money from, that's not going to work because I remember we were hungry all the time. You know, little kids eat. They need to eat all the time, not just three meals. Sometimes they need more. And then they, we were growing so fast we needed clothes all the time. So it's, they don't pay you enough to have a foster kid. You you almost you have to really want to be a foster kid and understand that you're going to have to use some of your own earnings to help take care of the kid. So that's what I think. I think maybe a better place might be California Pizza Kitchen, you know? <laughs> what do you mean? Because you go there, you get a nice meal. It's like decent. And then you could have the flyer on the back, like oh, foster a okay. child there, you know? I don't think it's so funny now that I understand what you mean. Because you do have to market to people who can afford to do it. Yeah. I mean, financially. Because yeah. a lot of frustration that comes about I think it comes about because of finances. Yeah. When you're already strapped for money and then a kid comes along, yeah. even though you want to do this, it may be too much hard financially to do it. That's why I'm like, maybe a restaurant, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a restaurant. Yeah. Or people, or market to people. Um, how about Newport Beach? <laughs> <laughs> That's hey, true. You know, Oh, or you ever see those airplanes that got the big, the big banner that they're dragging behind them up in the air, or uh, riding in the sky over Newport yeah. Beach? How about that? Right. <laughs> Perfect. I like oh, that. Mimosa. <laughs> well, we'll become the marketers for foster care, and then we'll get more children adopted. Yeah, I mean that would be a cool goal, you know? Yeah. Uh, to be adopted. You know, I was able to get my childhood records because I was never adopted. and But I think some kids who are adopted at some point still want to know who their real parents were. Uh, kind of a complete, get a complete view, uh, idea of who you are, where you came from. It's important. And I can remember when I was finally adopted and I would go to adoption support groups and I would, I would find... I had gone through such a horrific experience that those kids that were growing up, it, when they found out that they were adopted, they would go off the rails, right? They would, because, they, you know, they yeah. felt lied to and betrayed by their, by their so-called parents that they weren't really their parents. And then I would talk to them and they'd be like, okay, well, you've, you, you've been through it so much that maybe it's not so bad for us. I'd be like, you know, you can take this positively. Like, you know, yeah. somebody loved you enough to take you in, even though they weren't your own, their own child. Like, think about that. Instead of thinking about the anger that they quote unquote lied to you, think about the love and compassion they showed you in bringing you into their family. Yeah. It's all a matter of perspective. And it seems like that's something that you, that you were able to shift. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Antoine Fisher. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.